You are listening to How Bass Music Shaped British Society, a podcast series exploring the history of Jamaican sound system culture in Britain and how its legacy has revolutionised music, from sound, business and culture to people, preservation and society. I'm Paul Gilroy. I was born in Bethnal Green Hospital. And your parents, where do they originate from? My mother's Guyanese and she came to live in England in the early 1950s, 1951, she came here. My father um, was a Londoner and grew up round Mornington Crescent, near Camden Town, Mornington Crescent. How many siblings did you have? I have a sister who's, yeah, almost three years younger than myself. Now, I've got to, uh, that's quite significant, and I'll come back to that. It is significant, yeah, uh, you're right. There's a reason for that. Now, um, when it comes to what we popularly, you know, summarise as the arts, yes. writing, music, expressions, when did you find yourself gravitating towards that as something more than something that you engaged with at school or with friends? When did it become a, a means that you identified that you could express yourself through? Oh, from the very beginning, actually, uh, from ch- from childhood. I mean, I had a, I had a bit of a... You know, I won't say a difficult schooling, but I wasn't always very happy at school. And I didn't, my parents, although they tried to protect me by sending me to, um, or helping me to become someone who could pass exams and go 11 plus and get a, you know, um, what they used to call an assisted place to a private school in those days. They thought that would protect me. In a way, it didn't, it didn't really protect me. And so, you know, I... I I'm very grateful to my mum because she never made me go to school, actually. Although that didn't mean that there were, weren't other forms of discipline around education. And the one thing, you know, my mum was a writer, so the thing that I got from her above all, really, was a, a love of language and a love of, of, of manipulating language. Uh, writing, playing with words and so on. I love words, you know. So that was part of my identity, I guess, from as long as I can remember. Would you say you were homeschooled? In a form, in a form, you know. Obviously, my mum's a teacher before she became a writer and all the rest of the things she became. So, yeah, in that sense, it was a, there was a lot of homeschooling, both formal and informal. But, you know, the thing I took from it was really just this, this love of language, this love of words. And obviously, you know, because my mum and my dad were people who were political in a way, you know, there were lots of political books around the house, you know, and, um, you know, my mum gave me a copy, when I suppose I was, when I was a teenager, she gave me a copy of Souls of Black Folk, and, you know, they had sort of new lefty sort of books, they had Raymond Williams and all that kind of thing around the house, and, and, and then, you know, obviously you've got people coming through who are part of the world that they're in, who, and some of that rubs off, you know, so both with music and with, with other kinds of... So this History love of language, well. sorry to have interrupted you, yeah. this love of language, I presume, allows you to feel that you can orchestrate, you have some power, not only over your own um, hmm. sort of expression, but there's a way in which you can actually cultivate understanding by harnessing this power. Well, you realise that there is, yes, there's a power in language and that the power in language can accomplish things in the world. I suppose what these days people would call that the performative power of language. And, you know, love of poetry, for example, plays with all of that. The dancehall DJs play with that, you know. I mean, Linton, who was very important in my own sort of development, you know, was someone who who played with that power of language in a completely new way that spoke to the conditions and the historical experiences of my generation, although obviously he's a little bit older than me, not much, you know. 
So you, you mentioned there that your, your parents were politically active, you know, they were, mm. your mother's involved and engaged and working in education. Mm. So this naturally, I presume, washes over and through you, yourself and your sister. There's a way in which you're, you're aware of the inequalities, the political... Well, yeah, and of course we're the black and white minstrels, aren't we, in our street, you know what I mean? And, and walking around, you know, you go on holiday, people want to touch my mother for luck and all that stuff. That's the era we're talking about. And, you know, I mean, my dad had been a communist, you know, and, and, and a conscientious objector in World War Two, and, and all of that, you know, even though it's being, in a way, shed, you know, and there are lots of family things I don't really want to talk about, but let's just say that, you know, being a quote-unquote mixed-race family when we were one, out and about in London, you know, neither of my parents drive, so we're on, we're on the bus, we're on the train, we're walking along. You can imagine some of the scrapes we got into, and... And, you know, we were, you know, they were both had, had work and they, you know, so we're not, we're not in a situation of, of poverty at all, you know. Um, but, you know, living in the flats where we lived, um, living in the flats where we lived, the world was in the, those flats, even in those days, you know, upstairs, there's, there's, you know, there's Chinese people, there's Jamaicans, there's Indians, there's the whole world is there. And that's a very important London experience, I suppose you could say. As well. So, um, now your sister, what's, what's your Darla, name? my sister's called Darla Jane, yeah. Now, um, you wrote a, a very moving piece in Greg Saunders. Um, oh, Cope, right. okay. Cope, um, yeah, she has a piece in there too. Yes, and she has, like you say, you, she, she's committed a, an, um, a feature in there too, where yeah. you talk about, you know, her influence and huh. her sort of political awakening and how the two of you had a shared sort of activism, but a different Well, way for a moment we yeah. did, because, you know, she, she, had, she drew me into Rock Against Racism, which I wouldn't have been... I had, wouldn't really have thought about getting involved with it with them, because the guy she was going up with at that time was a designer, was one of the people. She was working as part of that group of people in there. I went, I don't know, there's a kind of inner collective and then there's a wider group. And she was in that group, and she, you know, and that time we had this dream that we were going to, you know, we were going to make a black temporary hoarding because she's on the cover of one of those yes, issues. And I remember there was a meeting, you know, where this was discussed, and and I thought, well, okay, if that's they're going to let us do that, that's fine. Obviously, there are a lot of questions about the left and whether people, you know, what what a black temporary hoarding might have meant and where culture and music would have sit in it and all of that. And then going out from that meeting with great enthusiasm to sort of slightly, let's say, older generation of black militant uh, voices, you know, activists, and saying to them, look, we've got this opportunity, what do you think? Do you want to get involved with it? And they're all saying, fucking no chance, mate. You know, or the equivalent in the vernacular uh, that we spoke at that time in the 70s. So I, I realised then, I suppose from that, you know, um, I realised that our experiences were a bit different because those, all of those people were people who were migrants, really. You know, and they have they had a kind of migrant relationship that was filtered through a, a kind of colonial formation. It's a bit like my, you know, relationship with Stuart Hall. It's very clear he was a Jamaican, you know, and of course he had, a, a, you know, great political insight and great political attachment to the fate of black Britons. But, it, I mean, he even says, I think, somewhere, you know, that he wasn't really interested in whether there was any black in the Union Jack. Do you know what I mean? Uh, he got interested in, in it, but he wasn't really. But for me, and I would like to say f for my generation, that was a, an important fight. And it was something that the music actually 
uh, addresses very, very directly over a long period of time. And, 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 and that sense of not being Jamaican, you know, but being connected to Jamaica, or not being African-American, but being connected to black America, not being African, but being connected to Africa. Those things are all being negotiated in the music. So in a way, when I come along, you know, and, the, and, and I'm not my own, obviously, but there are other people who are doing things connected to the things I'm doing as a, as a kind of movement, movement in the arts, for example. Um, when, I, when I come along, all I'm really doing is taking things that have already been in the music and translating and re-articulating them into a different kind of language, into a different kind of discourse. With a project like this one, what's important is to have the absolute details right. And that's fundamental. And it's really important because all, I won't say all, let's say 50% of what you read online is garbage and the other 50% is contestable, right? So the first thing that happens is people run to the internet, they start Googling, and when they don't find something, they think what you're saying isn't true. And I think that it's up to us to, to make a rich archive, which is right in all the details, so that we can, in a sense, struggle against that. I have to say, though, the publications that you've created, both academic and non-academic, mm. the, the work that you've committed, based upon the journey that we're still going to discuss today, provides a challenge to the sort of the lazy Googling of, well, give me receipts, show me where this is proved, yeah, you know, yeah. pick up a book, read yeah. what this, how this, how this history rolls out. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's um, an important legacy of what you've gone through. If I just pull us back, yeah, you know, back to, you know, when you were just talking about you know, family of four, there's no car, you know, you're, as you go out to dinner, to, you know, just go out as a family. Yeah, we didn't go out to dinner, no one did that in those days. <laughs> right, but, but as, as you went out, you, you yeah, your sister, just being you, around and about, yeah. yeah. Other people are responding to you. Oh, of course, that's true, and like on the bus, you know, you get spat out on the bus, my mum would get back on the bus and start, um, you know, putting that right, you know, yes. um, whereas my dad was a bit uncomfortable with that, he didn't know, didn't know, didn't know how to react to that actually and that was that's interesting but i think what um i'm not to i'm, not, I'm trying i absolutely don't want to sound clinical here no but sure yourself and darla have a different lived experience absolutely than your yeah parents. and because we were both wild wild kids in the sense that as soon as we could get out as you do in those days as soon as you can get into the world you're in the world actually mm -hmm. and london offers you that chance mm -hmm. and we both of us love music so, you know, we would, you know, we would, we would go out and we would hear music. We would, I mean, again, the age difference is a thing. But for example, let me give you an example. I think when the Whalers came, after that very, um, what's the word, epochal television broadcast of the Whalers on the um, oh, Old Grey Whistle Test, you know. That's early 1970s. Yeah, 70, I think, 70, is it 72 or 73? I can't remember. I think, it's, I think it's the spring of 73. I think so. I might be wrong. As soon as that happened, we look, obviously we've been hearing that music before because we, we used to listen to Steve Barnard on Radio London on the Sunday lunchtime. And Steve would play, you know, I know you're focusing this project on black British music, so Steve would play Simandi, Steve would play the Simmerons, Steve would play those strange records that were coming from Chalk Farm Studios with a synth overdubbed on them and all that. So he would play that and he was, but he was, and he was faithful, you know, to what was going on locally, he would tell you, you know, which sound was playing in which town hall and which shuffling competition would happen where or whatever it is. So we would go out and, and I remember him saying, oh, well, Bob Marley and the Whalers, well, it wasn't Bob Marley and the Whalers, it was the Whalers. The Whalers are going to be playing in the Greyhound pub down Fulham Palace Road in a pub for free, right? 
I don't think, you know, I think I might have even driven there, funnily enough. And me and my sister, we went off to, to that, and that was, that was a very, uh, it was a very powerful night. And I remember saying to him, as soon as they finished, let's go and talk to him. Let's go and talk to him. So he ran down the stairs to talk to him in the street. Uh, um, I, I think Rodigan actually was on the stairs. I've because I've just read his book and he tells a story, a similar story. So he was there too, but there were not a lot of white people there in that pub that night. Maybe a couple, you know. So, that, so things like that. We would go around together. And, you know, that time, that early 70s, when I was doing my O-level, 71, you know, 72, 71, Roundhouse still used to have this thing called implosion. You could play, I think it was seven and sixpence. You could go in and hear music on a Sunday. It would go from lunchtime through to the night. And people like George Clinton came then. I think there was a bill of like George Clinton in the MC5 or something like that. It was, you know, so it's funkadelic. So you could see that or, I mean, I remember the night before my English O-level, which I duly failed the next day, I, I, I was watching Boz Skagg's band and they were killing it. You know, all these really hip funk and jazz musicians from San Francisco just playing that music. And it was so beautiful. So these things are, are possible and they're as, as a kind of layer. And I think that same spring of 72, the following, the following year, I, I, I liked this girl who um, was an usherette at the Rainbow Theatre, uh, which had just been reopened, actually. It had been refurbished. It had been the Astoria before, down at Finsbury Park, which is now a, a big evangelical church. It's beautiful inside. And she said to me, um, oh, you know what? Curtis Mayfield's playing down there next uh, weekend. And uh, I said, well, I haven't got a ticket. She said, don't worry. You know, I've been the usherette there. All you have to do is, like, get a 10-bob note in your hand and put it in the hand of the security, and they'll wave you through. I said, OK. So, you know, um, that I wandered down there and did that. The first of many times that was done, I must say, <laughs> at the Rainbow. Um, and... And that was a real night that changed my life, actually. I will say the direction of my life, the sort of seriousness. Um, and Curtis, you know, obviously I knew the impression songs and so on. But that's the, that's the moment of We the People Who Are Darker Than Blue. That's the moment of, you know, of his, I guess, for me, some of the richest and most interesting political music that he made. Stand in your glory I know you won't mind 
Those spaces, that uh, opportunity to engage with live music was really important. And, you know, I had an idea, a fantasy, as many young, young boys, young men of my age did, that we would make music of our own. I used to, so in addition to going to hear a lot of live music, I would be practicing and we had a band and we used to go and play around little gigs and so on, you know. And that's where, so my love of listening to music and later of writing about music is very much connected to the fact that I always imagined that I might be a musician. A lot of my friends from that time went on and stayed being professional musicians even now. Mm. And that, it's that socialisation and how it actually weds itself to your identity, your racial, yeah. your gender identity yeah. that yeah. I'm very interested in. I'm, gonna, I'm going back to that, that, that issue of you know, yourself and your parents now, yeah. only because all four of you yeah. have a different way of responding to the outside. Well, yeah, everyone does, don't they? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And we're all in a different outside also. But, yeah, but you're mm. seen collectively. Because my mum's and dad not, didn't come with me to Curtis or no. weren't dancing with me on the Albert Hall stage to the Voices of East Harlem in 1970. No, no, so I, no like I mean, what, what precedes that in so much as how your parents are viewed as an interracial couple right. and in how their offspring are viewed and then right. how you right. and your sister are viewed right. through your gender. I see. There's that external objectification as to yeah, what absolutely. you are, what you yeah. mean. Yeah. And yet you find some solace well, yeah, I find solace, but because it wasn't all miser music is is joy, you know, music is sublimity, and you know, I mean, I had an afro, so I was walking around, and a lot of people made assumptions about me anyway, because you know, um, those things were those things were uh, immediately um, deviant. You're 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 a deviant, so you get stopped by the police and all of that kind of thing. And you accept that as just like the weather or something. You don't, you don't really, I mean, you might resent it when it rains for two weeks or something, but you don't think it's unexpected or, do you know what I mean? You, it becomes, just becomes part of your environment. You have to, if one more hazard, you have to negotiate. How old were you when you grew, when you decided, what made you decide to grow your afro out? Oh, um, what made me? Well, because it was cool, of course. It was cool. It was definitely cool to do that. And... Um, and and I always wanted to be cool, you know. I wanted to be the coolest, the coolest kid. Definitely, there are strong generational things about it that music does, as you say, gives you an identity. Uh, it gives you a certain 
um, I, I don't want to use any other word because I think the value of coolness is important in, in this story. So being cool is all right. Um, and of course now I want to go into a slightly more difficult era, area because I think as a, some, as a kid who aspires to be a musician and all of that, I didn't think much of British black music, to tell you the truth. I want to be honest about that. Because I thought, when I saw the Simmerons, I thought, why is that guy playing the bass like that? It's like, it's like I don't like it, you know. So Mandy, I, did, I like some of their records, I will admit. I see much more in them now. I hear much more in them now than I could have heard in 1972. But I did like some of those records. And they were more, they were more innovative in a way. When I went and heard those groups, I don't think I ever saw Simandi live. I did buy some of their records at that time because Steve Barnard really, I would say, Steve really plugged Simandi as an innovative development. And, and some of those records are really good, really good. Um, but a lot of the British black music didn't really dig it, actually. It didn't really dig it. I, I liked American music. I liked Jamaican music. I liked the hippest records that came in and I liked... And I like the hippest funk, you know, it wasn't like you had to choose in those days because it wasn't like if you went out into an environment to, to a dance or to hear music, not in a live sense, but to wear sandals or something like that, there'd be all kinds of things being played. There's still a kind of relationship to an, a, a world of R&B in the sense of like classic jump blues, kind of one scotch, one bourbon, one beer kind of R&B. And then, you know, if there's a shuffling competition or something like that, you'll hear someone might play sort of good records. I remember from that moment would be, I don't know, uh, I've got ants in my pants and I want to dance or something like that by James Brown. And then there's, there's a kind of world of funk that's, that's sort of slightly different from that, but I think a lot of the musicians who went on to be really creative in British black music were listening to, and that was a kind of New Orleans thing. For example, I remember meeting a girl walking along Holloway Road by the Black House who was carrying a record. And I thought, she's got a fantastic afro. I've got to find out what that record is. <laughs> that was my motivation. So I talked to her and the record was um, Hook and Sling by Eddie Bowe. And I thought, great name, got to get that record. So I went and found that record. And it was just like, you know, it's a classic, you know, um, Zigaboo modelly sort of funk record. And uh, I suppose around, maybe it was early actually, I'd heard, I'd been at a party and someone had put on a Meters record that they brought back from New York. Maybe this is like summer of 69, 70 sort of time. And I just, as soon as that record hit the deck, you know, I just thought, what the fuck is that? That's beautiful, you know? And I think a lot of musicians like that, responded to that music because even in Jamaica, you know, you've got people like the Barrett Brothers, then the Hippie Boys, you know? And they released a, uh, released a version of um, Sis, uh, um, Sissy Strut or Look at Pie Pie, one of those meters, Jim. So you get this sense of, of musicians everywhere being drawn into a musical revolution which is unfolding in the Black Atlantic, actually. And, that, and it touches the lives and the creativity of people really across that, across that world, because we know there are African musicians who listen to that too. I mean, when James Brown finally gets to Lagos and he gets involved with Fellow, he said, yeah, I went to hear Fellow's band, but you know what I heard in that band? The band was doing things that actually my band had already done, but I didn't mind, you know. So, so I think it's very important to understand this is an incredible period in the creative history of Black Atlantic music, that the music's traveling, it's resonating, it's pollinating, it's, it's touching the creativity of musicians everywhere. And that if you want to make a kind of web, if you like, or network, you'd call it nowadays, wouldn't you? If you wanted to make a network story of how the music developed during the 20th century, London would be a big node on that network. One of the things that actually challenges 
your sort of boyhood memories yeah. and and prejudices against British music yeah, yeah. is married and translated as you've conceded through your academic writing because you make that leap from the boys, the double consciousness, where you are constantly aware of who you are but through the eyes of another. But the lived experience, that consciousness, isn't African American because to be no. a descendant biracial or yeah. for you know for um, West Indian yeah. so a West Indian descendant is to be responding to a different socio-economic and political history yeah. here. That's true. That's absolutely true. And I think, but I also want to say one thing, you know, you say biracial, I don't like that word particularly. Uh, we didn't have any white relatives. I don't have any. I've discovered, so it's not like, you know, there are two families. Right. Do you see what I mean? So that's one thing. And the other thing um, um, I want to say about that is that we were half castes, right? That's I what we were. Said that to no, you. no, you wouldn't. No, but I'm, let's. Let's deal with that language of that moment. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying that that was a comfortable. If people call me half cast, I would fight them. Yeah. So it's not it's not it's not a comfortable uh, point of reference. But that is what we were called. That was that. There's no language of mixed raceness anywhere, yeah. and we responded to that by saying we were black kids. That's how we res responded to it. Yeah. Um, we're black kids, you know, and there was a there was something in the mood. Of black culture at that time, which which accepted that probably now that wouldn't be the case, and it wasn't. Um, it became an issue, you know, at, at a certain point, I suppose, in the late seventies or eighties. But at that time, that was the position we took, and there were lots of other kids like us. Actually, that's the other thing. So you don't have to take that position on your own. Yeah. You know, you're not alone. You mentioned language as you know something that united you and your mother in mm -hmm. your sort of academic mm. um, relationship, as well as obviously your interpersonal yeah. relationship. And somebody that I think is so very important to the language on the streets from the 1950s and onward, if obviously, obviously before, yeah, yeah. but something that reggae manages to do is really yeah. bring patois into yeah. the, to the fore. And Miss Lou in, in Jamaica, oh, who yeah, actually yeah. pushed yeah. And, and was resilient in having pride in the use, the utilisation of patois. The revolution in the value of that language came with Linton. I will say that it came not just in the sense that he named the experience that we all knew from being in a house party or being in a sound based culture. He puts that label on it, but also the way that he makes that language poetic. And, you know, when I guess Dread Beat and Blood, his, um, I think it's his second book of poetry came out in 1970. I think, or 74, 75. I was at university and I knew about him because he was a he was the librarian or something at the Keskadee Centre down um, Caledonian Road. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, people I, I knew talked about him and Keskadee was a place where things also, things happened, you know, events happened, sort of cultural events and so on. And, um, but I think the, the revolution in the language, the idea that that language was rich and dense and poetic and beautiful. I mean, I knew it was powerful from listening to the records, but he, by making it poetic, offered a new set of possibilities for people. So I do, I mean, I know he, he speaks of the DJ as a poet. He speaks of Iroh, the mighty poet Iroh was on the wire, right? So he's, he's offering in that, 
in that sentence, a chance to think about and listen to Iroy as a poet. You read, we used to read Rolling Stone because of the music, amazing reviewing and interacting with um, jazz musicians and R&B musicians and rock musicians and all of this. Where do you, where do you turn to find a critical kind of commentary on it? Um, that's going on very early. And then of course, 1973, Black Music gets launched as a publication. And that, that was a very, very important moment for me because it was serious, it was so serious. And you know, I've mentioned Linton as someone who, who offers you a chance to engage the language of the DJ, the reggae DJ as a poet. Carl Gale as a writer is someone who takes that language, the language of patois, and tries to develop a critical commentary on the music in that idiom. And Carl Gale, you know, it, later on, of course, in his own publications, Jahugly Man and other things like that in the early 80s. But certainly he and maybe Penny Real too, although I didn't know who Penny Real was, you read what they're doing and you see that they're trying to bring that language into a commentary on the way the life, is, uh, the, the music has acquired a social life, a cultural life, a cultural significance, and they want to fold that into the way we engage the music. And that, that was a fantastic was a fantastic discovery. Although I couldn't, in a way, for me, I couldn't, I couldn't begin to write like that. I could really savour it, and I could see its importance, and I could see it was a, it was a, a generational marker, and you know, it gave me confidence. It gave me courage, actually, to make experiments of my own. Sisters rocking, a dread beat pulsing, fire burning, chocolate power and darkness creeping, night, black veiled night is weeping, electric lights consoling, night, a small hall soaked in smoke, a house of ganja mist, music blazing, sounding, thumping, fire. Blood, brothers and sisters rocking, stopping, rocking, music breaking out, bleeding out, pumping out, fire burning, electric power of the red bulb, staining the brain with the blood flow, and the bad, bad thing is brewing. Ganja crawling, creeping to the brain, coat lights hurting, breaking, hurting, fire in the Dread beat, bleeding, beating, fire, dread. Rocks rolling over, hearts sleeping while rage rising out of the heat and the hurt. And the fist curling anger reaches a hurt. Then flash of a blade from another to a hill leaps out for a kick of a flesh of a piece of skin. And blood, bitterness, exploding fire, wailing blood and bleeding.
this is where you start to see music as something far more than a musical form. It starts to become an art form because it's yeah. a, it's actually um, a breeze blocking and a way of life. Yeah. Actually, a way a way of life. You know, I think that moment in Curtis Mayfield's performance in The Rainbow in 1972, when he sang, you know, "We the People Who Are Darker Than Blue." I mean, he really did bring the roof down. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those, those uh, video performances from that tour. There's an album called Curtis Live, which is from that same moment. And he too, I think, was on the Old Grey Whistle Test with that band um, when they toured in uh, London at that time. You know, So I just think, well, you've got Bob Marley here and you've got Curtis Mayfield there. And you know, next week there's someone else, and next week there's the week after that. And if you want to go and be in those spaces, you can go. You can go and be in those spaces. And you can just, they'll be over there, and you'll be over here, and you'll be absorbing and learning and being infused. So, you know, the idea, it's not just about being a musician, actually. It becomes a, a, a stimulus to develop a different understanding of what it is to be a communicator, to be an intellectual, to be a thinker, to be responsible in your in your um, reactions to a world which is not, you know, in your interest. So you mentioned the the launch, the publication of Black Music. Yeah, that was a fantastic thing. So did you gravitate towards that as a way of expressing Absolutely. And and I felt, again, you know, in a sort of Black Atlantic frame, if you turned that page, you opened that magazine, I, I, I couldn't, didn't have time to go throughout my collection and pull, pull out the first issue. I sent, sent an image of the cover and the contents. If you uh, t- to take that and flick through it, you'll have reggae, you'll have soul, you'll have R&B, you'll have jazz, you'll have African music, you'll have gospel, you know. So all of it's being brought together into one publication. And then you'll have, you know, um, charts from the States, charts from Jamaica, charts from lo- local, locally. And so you can look at the charts, you can look at all the different forms of music. You get a very wide view of how the music, how the culture is developing across that space. And, and so it was nothing exceptional then for me to turn around and say, you know what, you can't start to tell a story of culture only from within one national perspective. You have to be able to go beyond the boundaries of the national state. Do you think now, looking back, that, that, that your enthusiasm for that publication, the, the, the fact that this publication existed, that it was looking back but also commenting contemporaneously yeah, on it was music. Hip. Yeah. You could actually see the sort of, like you mentioned, the web of how yeah. of the interrelatedness of yeah. different musical forms. That thou, That's pretty much the seeds that sowed the seed of so much of your yeah. academic routine. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I, I don't mean black music itself, but that, that spirit definitely is something that encourages me. And, you know, in the same way I've talked about Linton, you know, as someone who unlocked a certain set of incredible possibilities creatively with the language um, through his valorizing of what's going on in the vernacular space of the dance hall, but also through his own practice as a poet who, who spoke the language of, of being here as a, as a youth, you know, as, a, as, as someone who, a brand new breed of blacks has now emerged. That's what the poem says. And so you, you recognize yourself in that. But I mean, musically, I suppose the other figure and, you know, I revere him, I revere him, is Dennis Bavel, Because if you turn that first page of the first issue of Black Music, what you find there is a picture of Matumbi. <laughs> it's tiny, it's a tiny picture. But Matumbi, you know, is the, is the moment where, you know, 
And I mean, obviously, there's an unevenness in everyone's creative life. I'm not, you know, I mean, some of the records that he thought people would think were Jamaican, you know, I didn't, I didn't really rate them very much. But, but, you know, let's just say, let's give him his signal importance as a transitional figure who defines a sound that corresponds to that spirit of an emergent British black community culture solidarity, imagination, you know? And Mutumbi is that. And those records, those incredibly creative records of Mutumbi, um, after Louis Louis, I guess we'd say, Brother Louis, sorry, not Louis Louis. We're never after Louis Louis. Louis Louis is permanent. Uh, after Brother Louis, after their reggae version of that, you know, there's just a whole sequence of incredible music that has a sound that is unique and particular and powerful. You know, there's the, the Lovers Rock records, there's Louisa Mark, there's, you know, I mean, I can remember, it must have been my sister's 18th birthday party in the Roxy, playing the dub side of I'm in Love with the Dreadlocks. And again, the roof just coming down, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think by then I developed a range of fantasies about myself as a DJ to complement my fantasies of myself as a, mu as a musician, uh, as an abandoned musician um, who wanted to be some... Anyway, so, you so, want, you so I was playing music and every chance I got, I got to those decks, you know. Yeah. Mm. So, um, sticking with Dennis Bavel for mm. a moment, yeah, I, course, I'm still yeah. keeping an eye on, um, yeah. you know, deliberate um, presentation visually as well as linguistically of Patois with, with somebody like Linton. Mm. Where do you see, for some people, certainly by the 1980s, yeah. when, they, when they hear about Lover's Rock, or when there's that Lover's mm. Rock segment mm. within a dance, it's mm. a bit like, okay, it's time to get the girl. You know? Oh yeah, there's, there's that's, that's the story that's been told, isn't it? Yeah. But in terms of its vital importance in yeah. the development, the confidence that yeah. you mentioned that yeah. something like black music, the publication yeah. brings, there's this stamp that British blackness has created, inspired its own musical subgenre. Yeah, its own musical world. But I think, you know, I, I think in a way that's true and Lovers Rock was a thing. It became a thing very early. But my, you know, when I began to go and see Mutumbi playing live, I would want to emphasise the quality and the performance that they did. And everybody in that moment, um, I don't know if Michael would agree with this, everyone in that moment was responding to the challenge of trying to play the music live in a way that it corresponded to the best performances that had been recorded. And one feature of that was being able to, to, to dub it live. Being able to dub it live, not always with, you know, people couldn't necessarily afford, you know, d digital delay lines and the sorts of things you'd find in a studio that, that would sculpt the sound of dub. But I remember going to see Matumbi, I don't know, I can't remember if it's in the 100 Club or if it was in the Rialto in Birmingham, and going to see them. And they were playing, they would play the dub in real time without any signal processor. And they would sing it like that on the stage and they killed it. I'm sorry. Because that speaks to uh, the position that bands took up, which was they replaced the sound system when they went on stage in these clubs. Yes. And the music that was on the sound system. So 
they had to replicate whatever was happening in yes. the records. Yes. And the bands that were, could do that were few and far between. Yes. And particular to Matumbi was the fact that they were often the backing band for Jimmy. For, for those acts, yeah. Coming over. And Dennis, because we've interviewed Dennis, will uh, go into detail of how they had to study how Jamaicans played in order to get that gig yeah. as the backing band. And so just just focusing in on that, because there's something else that happens in that period, which is there starts to become a split between the reggae community and those that liked soul within. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what we want to speak to that, because the yeah. funk soul thing was kicking It starts in. to diverge, yeah. Well, I, I suppose I, I can remember, I always tried, you know, to have Catholic tastes in this. And I was living in Birmingham when I began to feel that that split was entering into, into life. And of course, reggae is going through an incredible period of creativity right then. And I remember going to see Chic on their first tour in the Birmingham Odeon. I don't know, you, did you go to that? That was an incredible night of music, actually. That's, that was one of the most uplifting and intense experiences of music I've ever had in my life, seeing, seeing that Chic tour. So I, I, I will say, yes, you're right, that things do begin to diverge. Although you know, you still have to go to the same record shop to get the records, which is which is a sign. And I think the musicians, let's say, because you've also got Bob Marley trying to make disco records. Let's face it, and that's you know Blackwell and people like that deciding that that's the best way of drawing African Americans into the market for reggae is to approach them via the route marked disco. So I mean. The people who are really being creative in that period are people who have got an eye on both of, of those things. And I think Lover's Rock, you mentioned earlier on the importance of Lover's Rock, isn't it? Lover's Rock becomes a place where those things can be in dialogue. Because I think, you know, you've got people listening to Gene Kahn or something and turning them into 15, 16, 17 or, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of traffic on that road. The Jones girls, you know. The, 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 all of that, the emotions. People are taking a certain Patrice Russian, they're taking a, a layer of R&B slash disco and they're making it very easily into, into Lover's Rock. My friend John McKenzie made um, a Lover's Rock version of You Remind Me with um, uh, a Lover's Rock version of You Remind Me by Patrice Russian with his, with his cousin Candy at that point, Candy McKenzie, who's sadly passed away now. So I think that one of the things Yes, the divergence is there, but Lovers Rock becomes a place where there's a there's a legitimate dialogue, and that one that's I feel that's something that's been slightly missed in the way that people recover Lovers Rock because its signal importance is also, you know, that it allows those those things to speak to one another. I think though, just going off what Michael's saying and and and, and how and how you expanded that, that there's it's not not the confidence because the confidence is there. It's it's mm. the it's being afforded and accorded the freedom to be signed, you know, the opportunity to express oh, yourself well, in this way, because yeah. there's a way that Lover's Rock is relegated. It's like, oh, it's a part of the, the night that you get a girl, yeah. as opposed to what you're talking about with the musicality, is that we are as good as, we yeah. are a band. Yeah. If a band can actually replace yeah. in the live setting yeah. the sound system, yeah. which is set up to absolutely move your ribcage yeah. with that bass culture. Absolutely. The idea that, you know, you have to be... Would it be as good if if Dennis Bavel was in the room? Would you play like that? That it that this becomes this new marker within the United Kingdom, and you then have Gregory Isaacs, and yeah. you have people like Sugar Minot, yeah. Yeah, who are then yeah, yeah. recording yeah. under the, the 
description of, of Lovers Rock. Genre. Yeah, and Freddie McGregor, obviously, mm -hmm. too. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, I was going to say something else about that. Um, no, I've lost my, I've lost my yeah, thread. I'll just come in very quickly. Yeah, of course. There's another factor that we should bring in, which is at that time we had another challenge, which is Roots Reggae. Oh, I remember, yeah. Lovers Rock. And then the whole, uh, the way that's personified in terms of guys with locks or questions, because mm. we have fashion threads mm. now, yeah. who are lovers, rock, slash soul heads. Yeah, There's yeah. a whole uh, the identity yeah. around yeah. the music, or identities around the music yeah. uh, at the time. So I'd like to speak to that, because we, we've mentioned the Afro. Yeah, we haven't got to the locks yet. All right, well, let me, let me just say a couple of things before we get to that. There are two other points I want to make. One is that in the story of funk as part of black British music, you know, I'd want to, I don't know if you've inf interviewed Root Jackson. Yeah, but Root, you know, FBI, you can play those records now. Herschel Holder, fantastic arranger, Root. That was a great, great band that they had with FBI. I think they've reissued their music on C CD now. So you can go and hear a top funk band like that. And they, so, although I think that bass player they had, Lenny, can't remember his other name now. He may have been an African-American, I can't remember. But, you know, so, so you've got people like that playing at that level. Um, you know, I think it's 75, 76, Algero comes to Ronnie Scott's, you know, and he's backed up by two local musicians. Mm -hmm. He has this pianist with him, but he's got Nigel Colin Wilkinson from Leicester, who becomes, you know, Nigel Martinez and, and Jerome Rimson, who's an African-American who's living in London on bass. And so you, you begin to realise that there are people around you, you know, well, who, are, who are playing at that level, playing at that level. Um, yeah, real thing, obviously, four from eight, you know, although again, I didn't, to me, that was, a, well, I'm, no, I'm not going to say anything uh, critical about it. I think, yes, that's an institution and it really needs to be remembered and given value to. And the other person I just want to say something about, and this isn't to do with the relationship between African-American culture and reggae in terms of lovers rock. It's to do with the relationship between African-American jazz culture and jazz mentality and the development of reggae in Britain is Rico. Because, you know, he's someone else I revered. And we can tell a story about black British music, you know, that omits the uh, importance of Rico and Dandy Livingston. I don't know if he's still alive. But those, those records like Rico's Message, the one with the picture of Brixton uh, on the front, uh, Rico in the Park. I mean, those records, in terms of the sound, they blend together uh, uh, funk, reggae, jazz in this very organic, in this incredibly organic way. I mean, Rico's message in, stands out in my mind. We've got sort of dandy playing the, a sort of, you know, I don't know what genre that music is, but, you know, and I, and, and I only, Steve Barnard, again, was playing dandy. He was playing Rico. He was playing those records. So you could hear them. Couldn't find, couldn't find them. I had to wait years to actually get them for myself.
So I think Rico is important too because he opens a window into the world of jazz, actually. Um, it's not just ska and, and how we think about ska. It's, it's also a kind of jazz mentality that comes into the music. In other words, you know, he doesn't put, when he makes, um, you know, uh, the, the classic Island record, forget the name of it now, the one with the Ethiopian uh, picture on the front, he's, he, there's not a lot of soloing on that record. Um, but but you know, you know that there is a kind of jazz mentality in the way it's arranged and the way it's orchestrated, the way it's all brought so beautifully together. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. So there's things on things on that, you know, that, that are really part of this story too. So that was a, a thread that we should we should have also picked up. Now um, about locks. Well. How old were you when you when I started to, locking? I mean, and did you go? I mean, I know it sounds very, very mm. bovine, but did you go from an Afro to locking? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I did. And what age? How old were you? <laughs> I've never talked about this. Um, when how old was I? I was twenty-two. What year would that be? Um, seventy-eight. Seventy-eight. Yeah. And I remember at this time I'd come under the evil influence of Steel Pulse to some extent, and I was a bit friendly with and Andy Bowen. I talked to him about how I was moving to Birmingham. Well, I've been to Birmingham a bit. Birmingham was a very different place from London, I tell you. And I was going, to, and I knew some people in Hansworth. I'd walked around the streets of Hansworth, and I thought, fuck, you know, you know, because that, in terms of the the kind of political confrontation between young black people and the police, I would say that was the national front line of it, you know. And I know people in London will want to tell a different story about it. But, you know, Hands Off was an extraordinary, uh, is an ex was an extraordinary, it still is an extraordinary place. It was an extraordinary place at that time. And, I mean, lots to say about that. But anyway, so I've been up there and I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to be in Birmingham. You know, I want, to, I want to start having locks. It was a very dangerous thing to do at that time. It wasn't, it wasn't acceptable, you know, it was really not acceptable. And I remember, I went, and I went to see, yeah, we can talk about that, yeah. but just one more thing before we do. And, and I thought, well, Andy said, well, why don't you go and see David Hines? Because he, you know, you play the guitar. And I thought, well, okay. I got temporary hoarding to, to get me, um, to let me write a piece about Steel Pulse. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought, well, okay. And I went to see David in a flat that he lived in, one of those tower blocks up around Newtown somewhere. I don't remember exactly where it was. And I spent a few hours with him and we, we played the guitar together, we talked about music and we also gradually came to have a conversation about the fact we were about, both of us were going to start loxing. And he had a very, we had a bit of an argument actually, I will admit. Um, we had a bit of a, a sort of argument about the, about the meaning of that and about the meaning of Rastafari culture. And I guess in my, in my way, I guess I, I suppose I, um, yeah, we had a bit of an argument about, about what it might mean anyway. And, and I remember that moment as being pivotal in my own development because I thought to myself, well, I don't really agree with that. I don't agree with that. And the people that I've been, you know, reasoning with see this a different way. Nowadays, looking back, now looking back 30 whatever years later, I can see, I can see it more clearly and I can see that I was focusing on things that weren't important. But I do remember, I do remember that as a very... Again, a generational, a generational decision that was being made that would have consequences for the rest of my life, actually. Although I didn't know that at the time, yeah. you know. And, and I remember, and I, you know, and I remember him playing me that, that record 
of Tribute to the Martyrs and talking about that, or, or telling me about it. Maybe he didn't play all of it. He talked about, he t I remember him unlocking his perspective on the world through a commentary on the cover of Hands of Revolution and then and talking about what was happening with Tribute to the Martyrs and thinking, well, yeah, this sounds fantastic, but actually, you know, and some of the people I've been at university with knew them from Bourneville or knew Selwyn from Bourneville College, you see. So there was another kind of connection. And it was very clear that I was talking to, a, in a sense, a peer, you know, someone who was, I don't know if he's exactly this, I imagine he must be born in 1956 as well. That would be my guess from the kind of, both the kind of intimacy of the conversation and the nature of the decisions that were being made about what it was to be a black person in Britain at that moment, mm -hmm. to be a black person in that city at that time, walking around with locks, you know. Because, uh, of course, I, so, so st I started having my locks then, and, and you couldn't go anywhere in Birmingham city centre. There were these men who controlled all the clubs. Was it Charles and Eddie Futrell, Michael, the Futrell brothers, yeah. right? And they, they controlled a number of, you see, have you ever seen that BBC series Gangsters? Have you ever seen it? Mm. From the late 70s. It's about Birmingham, it's about gangsters in Birmingham. And uh, it's one of the best things that's ever been on TV in this country. I think you can get the sort of CD of it, you know, DVD of it or whatever, stream, I don't know. But anyway, it was just, they made two series of gangsters. It's about criminal infrastructure in Birmingham, some of which has a kind of oblique commentary on the unfolding of Birmingham multiculture, let's call it that. And anyway, the point is the Futural Brothers I don't know what their story was or which criminal enterprises they were, but they owned all those clubs and they had a policy that if you had a hat, you could not go into those clubs. So if you were covering up your locks, you couldn't enter. And we had a campaign, actually. We had a campaign to, to try and break that for a while. But of course, I mean, it runs up against the, the problem, which is a lot of the people don't really want to go in those clubs anyway. And why don't they want to go well, in because they Well, because they feel happier in a, in a blues or a house party right. uh, in, 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 in Balsall Heath or in Ambleworth, basically. And we lived in, we lived, um, you know, in Balsall Heath, just off Stony Lane there on the number eight bus route. And there was plenty going on in our neighbourhood, do you know what I mean? To, to not, but at the same time, if someone's excluding you, you want to kick the door off, don't you? So there's, there's that impulse. And there used to be a, a youth club opposite the court in Birmingham. I don't remember the name of that youth club, but just opposite the big court complex in the centre of Birmingham, there, there was a Citadel, maybe it's called Citadel Youth Club. And when I was beginning to try and write my PhD, I wanted to really um, work around there because a lot of the young people from that youth club, they would go into the court complex in the morning and they would go from court to court to court to court and go from the public galleries of the courts and if there was a black person in the dock they would stay and watch the trial and comment on the trial as it was being conducted and I got very interested in in that view of justice you know so I began to that's what I began to work on I didn't in the end um, complete that work but that's what was interesting to me at the that time you know and so having locks wasn't just something you could do you couldn't have meant there were places you couldn't go it meant you would be treated by contempt treated treated with contempt not just by um by white people who were found your appearance appalling um and scary but also by other black people too so you mark yourself as a sufferer that's what you do and I guess, you know, that's what I did. That's why I still, that's why they cut them now, you know. In many ways, life would be much easier for cutting them, but I just feel like I'm, I'm, still, I'm still on the side of the, of the sufferers, you know. 
stay tuned for part two where we continue the conversation with Paul Gilroy. Mm-hmm.